we need to know what's ahead upstream if we're going to get ahead of steam. In 1952, a long-distance swimmer named Florence Chadwick dove off the shores of Catalina Island, determined to get to mainland California. She had already crossed the English Channel. This challenge would be much harder. It takes 15 hours on a foggy and chilly day where she can barely see the accompanying boats. She wanted to quit, but her trainer insisted that she can finish the course. But Florence was too exhausted physically and emotionally. She finally gave up, stopped swimming, and she was taken back safely to dry land. To her dismay, she learned then that she was only a half a mile away from her goal. At the news conference next day, she said essentially the following, I don't want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And two months later, on a bright, clear day, she tried again and succeeded. Know what's ahead upstream, and you'll get ahead of steam. The Christian life is hard, but the good Lord and his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That includes prophecies of what's to come, a vision of the shore. But at times, the fog blinds us and the chill distracts us. The fellow saints urge us to hold on, but really we need to see that finish line for ourselves. We'll get a glimpse of that goal in today's passage. So we'll read um, Luke 21, 5 to 28. Luke 21, 5 to 28. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's in page 738. 738, Luke 21, 5 to 28. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, The days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers. 
relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Let me briefly discuss three introductory matters before getting to the sermon points. There is one, the timing of these events. Two, the internal structure of this passage. And three, its relevance for us today. So time, structure, and relevance. First of all, let's talk about time. Many wrongly believe that the predictions in today's passage were already fulfilled when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem about 40 years after Jesus. But when dealing with prophecies, we must realize this. Resemblance is not equivalence. Sure, Jerusalem was besieged in the Jewish war. But no, Jesus did not return in the clouds then. This is a faulty view of end times known as preterism. There are two kinds of preterist, full and partial. Both incorrectly interpret today's passage as mostly or completely fulfilled already. We'd interpret today's passage better if we recognize the unbreakable chain connecting the destruction of Jerusalem and the visible return of Christ. Recall that Brother Carey read Zechariah 14, 1-11 earlier. Such prophecies shaped the minds of Bible-believing Israelites, and so they knew well the tight chronological sequence. Jesus' disciples took for granted that the destruction of the temple, the second advent of Christ, and the end of the age were linked together. All conditions must be met. If the city and its buildings are raised, but there are no heavenly signs, then we're not really talking about what Jesus is talking about. So the cataclysmic events of Luke 21, 5-28, have their place later in the timeline, sometime in the future. Next, let's talk about the internal structure of this passage. So there are extraordinary events going on, enough to make your head spin, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, signs in the sky. It's the end of the world as we know it. I don't feel fine. We could use an outline here. 
And to do that, first look for this key phrase. It's one word in the original language, but it's translated as has drawn near, is near, or draws near. First, it's in verse 8 as Jesus begins his discourse. Our Lord warns that false teachers will come and say the time has drawn near. Next, skip down to verse 20. As Christ ships his focus to Jerusalem, he predicts signs that will let his followers know its desolation is near. Finally, fast forward to our final verse for today. In verse 28, Jesus says that at his appearance in the clouds, we should look up because our redemption draws near. Besides these repetitions, we observe further divisions. In verse 10, Luke creates a natural break as he writes, Then he said to them. You can also make the case that verses 20 to 24 zoom in on Jerusalem and its surrounding area. So based on these clues, I'm going to treat this passage in four parts. Verses 5 to 9, 10 to 19, 20 to 24, 25 to 28. Now, slicing and dicing is helpful, but there's, there remains a question about relevance. You look at a teaching like this, and you might ask yourself, what does this have to do with me? How do I apply it? I'm not even going to be here. I'll be raptured before the seven-year tribulation. Good luck, everybody else. When it comes to the question of relevance, I like to turn back to 2 Timothy 3.16 to 17. I'm reminded that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when we say all scripture, we're including even those parts that await fulfillment in the later times. Passages about distant future have relevance for us now. The rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, is meant to comfort us. 1 Corinthians 15 concludes with the exhortation to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's verse 58. God's judgment, discussed in 2 Peter 3.11, should lead us to holy conduct and godliness right here, right now. Luke 21, 5 to 28 is also profitable. Doctrinally, we learn about God and his works. With regard to reproof and correction, we can fix our faulty views of the world and its end. We find instruction in righteousness for our completeness and equipping. The imperatives in today's passage here such as don't be deceived, buy your patience, possess your souls, look up and lift up your eyes and lift up your heads. They directly relate to our spiritual growth. It's the principle of the greater to the lesser. If saints can be courageous in the worst possible times, we can be courageous in less severe circumstances. So let's now extract four principles from today's passage. I call them four propellers to get us out of the blinding fog and get us safely to the shore. First, don't be deceived 
or afraid concerning the future. Don't be deceived or afraid concerning the future. That's verses 5 to 9. Secondly, endure persecution for Christ's name. That's 10 to 19. Endure persecution for Christ's name. Verses 10 to 19. Thirdly, know what's to come for Jerusalem. Know what's to come for Jerusalem. That's verses 20 to 24. Fourthly, look forward to the return of Jesus. Look forward to the return of Jesus. That's verses 25 to 28. First, don't be deceived or afraid concerning the future. Let's set the scene here. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus and his disciples are on their way out of Jerusalem after a long Tuesday. As they're departing, some thought that our Lord would be impressed by the look and design of the temple. Its builder, Herod the Great, was a wicked king, but he got this one thing right. The stones were majestic. The donations were ornaments that added to its beauty. The end result was stunning. A historian named Josephus had this to say about it, quote, to approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain where all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white, end quote. But Jesus ruins the mood with his prophecy in verse 6. These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The disciples wanted to know more, but they decide to wait until they're clear of the city. And for good reasons, it was getting late. And also, it's probably not a good idea to talk about the destruction of the temple where enemies could overhear them. They're already being set up as revolutionaries. Once they put some distance between themselves and the crowd, Jesus takes a seat on Mount Olives. Some of the disciples, specifically Peter, James, John, and Andrew, approach him. They ask him privately the question in verse 7. The essence of their question is, when are the end-time events going to occur? And how do we know when it's about to happen? Jesus doesn't give a specific time, but he does explain the signs and what we need to do. He starts with the warning not to be deceived or afraid concerning the future. And what will be the cause of all this deception? I say it's a rule of life that when something's precious commodity, there will be counterfeits, fakes, knockoffs. The devil's good at that. He's a liar and the father of lies. He transforms himself into an angel of light. And because of Satan, there will be no shortage of people claiming to be Messiah. They incite panic among the masses. They create cult followings. To avoid deception, the conspiracies, the rumors, the murmurings, they should all be tested with the signs here, like verses verses 10 and 25. The signs of the end are going to be plainly obvious. 
they will be at a large global scale. We're talking about a great earthquake, even greater than the one that happened earlier this week. The sun turning black, the moon turning red, stars falling from heaven, according to Revelation 6. And to think, Jesus calls these merely the beginning of sorrows. So don't let the next solar eclipse and sensational headlines keep you up at night. Don't be deceived by false teachers and false messiahs. And there seems to be plenty out there even today. Keep your eyes on the truth as you face the world. Also, you'll need God's word to endure persecution for Christ's name, and that's the focus of verses 10 to 19. Luke, in effect, takes a breath and creates a wedge between verses 9 and 10 by inserting, then he said to them. There's another key marker in verse 12. Jesus says, but before all these things. That is, before the end arrives, believers must expect persecution. They'll be arrested, imprisoned, betrayed by family and friends, and even executed. True followers of Christ will have haters from every nation. The sufferings described in verses 12 to 17 can be unnerving. Unnerving for us because similar persecutions are already happening. Even now, Christians are arrested, imprisoned, betrayed by family and friends, executed. Even if the moon doesn't turn bloody tonight, there's a saint spilling his or her blood somewhere. We too need to endure persecution for Christ's name. But even as the suffering recorded here appear to spill over to our lives in our times, so do the assurances that the middle verses 13 to 15 give you comfort. For example, our own tribulations can be occasions for testimony. On such occasions, we rejoice as we're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And when such Witnessing opportunities arise, God equips us to be sufficient for these things. Our Lord says in verses 14 and 15 that we don't need to meditate beforehand on what will answer our enemies. He'll give us a mouth and wisdom which cannot be contradicted or resisted. Now, what does this mean? Do we all of a sudden become articulate, using perfect grammar, exhibiting a wide vocabulary? Do we instantaneously become capable TED Talk speakers or fill lecture halls like a famous philosopher? No, this is when looking at parallel passages helps. Mark 13, 11 records some other things Jesus said in this context. Whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. The mouth and the wisdom Jesus grants us correspond to the Spirit speaking through us. I believe that in those hours of persecution, the Spirit of truth who guides us into all truth enables us to speak the truth of the gospel. God's Spirit will bring out into the open God's word hidden in our hearts. 
if we rely on the Spirit and God's wisdom, and if we speak as his witnesses, his mouthpieces, we're guaranteed success in his eyes. Claim the promise of Isaiah 55, 11. As we utter from our mouths the words that go forth from God's mouth, they will not return to him void. Claim the promise of 2 Timothy 2, 9. Even if we suffer trouble to the point of chains, the word of God is not chained. Claim the promise of Revelation 12, 11. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And we do not love our lives to the death. Because of God's spirit, because of God's word, we can endure persecution for Christ's name. Claim the promise in this passage too. Now just to be clear, when it says in verse 18 that not a hair of our head will be lost, the Lord's not guaranteeing that we'll never suffer death. Jesus just said in verse 16 that someone will be put to death. Even the faithful apostles died, starting with James. So what gives? I think the argument here is similar to what we saw earlier in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said there in verse 7, 12, 7, how the very hairs of our heads are all numbered by God the Father. That's why he said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that, have no more that they can do. Similarly, here in Luke 21, Jesus is saying not even an inch of us will be lost. We will not be misplaced or eradicated. In the long view that includes the resurrection, those who belong to Christ, dead or alive, can claim the promise that's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Our whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's preservation leads us to our perseverance. Because the Father loves us and possesses us down to our every inch, down to our hairs, we can be patient and possess our souls. Through God working in us and through us, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And as the fullness of Gentiles comes in, God will remember his promises made to Israel. Correspondingly, our focus should turn to the city of Jerusalem, and we turn now to the third principle, Noah was to come for Jerusalem. That's in verses 20 to 24. In Psalm 111, verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. And if you diligently study the scriptures, and you know maybe do the year reading plan or something like that, and if you delight in the works of the Lord, you'll soon find that he has great works in store for Jerusalem. You could start with the book of Zechariah. The word Jerusalem appears 38 times in it. That's more than all the other minor prophets combined. There are more mentions of the word Jerusalem in 14 chapters of Zechariah than 48 chapters of Ezekiel. Now, another key book to know the fate of Jerusalem is Daniel. 
We learn in Matthew and Mark that Jesus cited a specific prophecy from Daniel 9.27. I don't have time to explain everything in detail. But we should know that at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, in the holy place of the temple, there will stand something that should not be standing there. The abomination of desolation is most likely an idol. It's the idolatry of the Antichrist, an image of the beast according to Revelation 13. We're told in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, that this Antichrist, also known as the man of sin, son of perdition, the lawless one, he's going to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And such desecration is a part of a grand-scale attack on Jerusalem. Revelation 11 confirms that Gentiles will possess the course of the temple and trample upon the holy city. Jerusalem will spiritually be called Sodom and Egypt. Its inhabitants will rejoice over the martyrdom of the two witnesses, So in the end times, the city of David will be oppressed, corrupt, both politically and religiously. But God will take his vengeance on these enemies and fulfill what's written in the prophecies. Prophecies like Jeremiah 33, verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. Here's another one in Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. And the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. But again, before there's redemption, there's desolation. Jesus is urging the living local saints at that time to not linger. Don't stick around Jerusalem. Run, no time to pack your belongings and clothing. Leave the city and don't go back in. He hopes that no mother is expecting a child or at that time or nursing or it's not winter. It's going to be bad. So bad that Christ says that those days are such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, nor ever shall be. It's so bad that unless the Lord has shortened those days, No saint will survive the tribulation, physically speaking. Now, even if we won't be there, knowing what's to come for Jerusalem is a key part of understanding God's plan. There's a lot more we can say on this topic, but let's move on to verses 25 to 28 of Luke 21. And there we find that we can look forward to the return of Jesus. Here we zoom out again, out of Jerusalem, out into the worldwide scene. It's bad everywhere we look. It's definitely the time of Jacob's trouble and trouble everywhere. Verse 26 makes me wonder how in the world these people can eat, drink, marry, buy, sell, plant like the days of Noah and days of Lot. How do they go on living when their hearts are failing from fear and expectation of the judgment day? How do they explain the bloody moon, the bloody sea, and the bloody rivers and springs of water? I think Thessalonians, again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
verses 11 to 12, provides the answer. There's a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Those headed for hell at that time ignored their consciences, crying out. They delude and desensitize themselves with the simple pleasures of life. While the world is collectively losing their minds and losing their souls, Christ will descend according to the prophecies of Daniel 7, 13-14, coming with the clouds of heaven, receiving authority from the Ancient of Days, It's not the time to look in some remote desert or go search in the inner rooms. This is the time for the elect at that time to look up. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. The redemption of saints draws near because that's when he'll send his angels to gather together his elect from every corner of the earth. So even now, we can look forward to the return of Jesus. There's something powerful and life-changing about this hope. Even as the world's getting darker by the day, we should live with energetic and eager anticipation of what's to come. Consider this week, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And I do hope that you have this hope in Jesus. I pray that all of us are ready by understanding and accepting the gospel. You've never asked Jesus to save you from your sins. This is the time. Don't delay. All of us have broken God's laws with our thoughts, words, and actions. We've lied, stolen, coveted, bowed down to idols. We committed adultery in our hearts, deserving of eternal punishment in hell. But God sent his son first time to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return in the clouds with power and great glory. Now's the time to repent and believe. Turn away from your sins. Trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Don't put your hope in false saviors and false messiahs. Do not rely on your works. We can enter heaven only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because of God's gift, we can endure to the end, our souls intact. And let's remind ourselves of the promises of God, and we'll see it summarized in our final song. The soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never know, never, no, never 
forsake. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality check that we see in your word, just how the world is not really getting better. In fact, it'll be getting worse and worse, getting to the worst possible times just before the return of your son. But we do look forward to that day. It is well with our souls as we look forward to that day. We ask that each and every day that we would remember the promises that are going to be fulfilled. Remember what's in your word. Look forward to heaven. Pray that that would transform our lives and give us purpose each and every day to live for you. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.